continue to grow in knowing God, his attributes. Last week we considered his holiness in Isaiah 6. When we see God's holiness in Isaiah 6, we see that we see our sin. His holiness is great, so worship him. This morning, we again consider his holiness and we see in our text in 1 Peter, you shall be holy for I am holy. A direct quote of Leviticus chapter 11 verse 44, which says, for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy and you shall not make yourselves unclean. Peter's context in 1 Peter throughout this letter is this. Choose to focus on God's eternal glory in Christ that awaits you. Choose to focus on God's eternal glory in Christ that awaits you. And let him transform you to live holy today, no matter your circumstances. This choice To focus on God's eternal glory in Christ, which awaits you who have placed your faith in Christ. And letting God, choosing to allow God, asking God to transform you so that you can live holy today, no matter the circumstances that you find yourself in. And so our text, if you don't have your Bibles open, if you'd open your Bibles to our text in 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 13 to 16. And this is the main point of the text. Fix your hope completely on Jesus Christ so that you be holy. Fix your hope completely on Jesus Christ so that you be holy. And what we're going to talk about this morning flows right out of that. The first point, fix your hope completely on Jesus Christ, the gospel. In verse 13, there is only one command in the verse, an imperative verb in the Greek. In fact, within these four verses, this is the only active imperative. A command that you are to perform the action We who are believers in Christ are to perform this action. You are to actively choose to do something. One active imperative. And it's this. Fix your hope. This is the active imperative. Fix your hope or set your desire. This is the command to you. This is what you are to do. And it's the central idea of this text. The hope that we have in verse 13 of seeing Jesus when he returns or when he calls us to see him face to face. The hope that we have of seeing Jesus points back to this salvation in verse 10. And this salvation in verse 10 points back to your faith in verse 7. Your faith in Jesus Christ is the salvation that you have. This is your hope. This is your hope to know Jesus and to one day see him. 
the sure and certain hope of an inheritance that you have, an inheritance that will not perish, the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. Fix your hope. Set your desire on Jesus completely with your whole heart. Verse 13, fix your mind on the grace that will be brought to you when you see Jesus face to face. It's true, none of us have seen him yet. Yet you love him. The scriptures say you love him though you have not seen him. What will it be like when he brings us to see him face to face? We love him now. What will it be like when you see him face to face in his full glory? So what does it mean to fix our hope on Jesus? This past Thursday evening we were sitting on our deck having dinner and There were two cardinals, a male and a female cardinal, and we were watching them sing to each other. And there was other birds fly around, but these two cardinals captured our attention. We chose to watch the two of them. And we continued to watch them as they flew from tree to tree and were singing back one to another. We chose to focus on them. So what does it mean to fix your hope, to fix your eyes on Jesus? Two things. You decide to know him. And you choose to abide in him. You decide to know him and you choose to abide in him. We decided to watch those two cardinals and we chose to continue watching only those two cardinals. You decide to know him. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That what he said about who he is, is true. That what he said, that no one comes to the Father except through me, is true. That what he said the night before he went to the cross, when he celebrated this table, is true. You have decided to believe in him. I heard Don Carson teach on faith at the Passover, which was a shadow of what we're celebrating today. Picture two Israelite men on the eve of that first Passover. They're down in Egypt. The first man says, what do you think about what's going to happen tonight? Are you a little bit nervous? This thing about the firstborn being killed Aren't you a little bit worried? The second man says, Well, God told us what to do through his servant Moses. Haven't you slaughtered the lamb? Did you put the blood on the two posts and on the lentil? You're packed and ready to go, aren't you? You ate the Passover meal with your family? Of course I've done all that. I'm not stupid. But it's still scary. All that's happened around here lately, the the flies, the, the river turning to blood, it's been pretty awful. And now, this threat of the firstborn being killed, it's easy for you. You've got three sons. 
I've just got one. I know what God says. I've put the blood there. But it's still pretty scary. I'll be glad when this night is over. And the other man says, bring it on. I trust God. That night, the angel of death swept over the land. Which one lost his son? The answer, of course, is neither. Because death doesn't pass over them on the ground of the intensity of their faith. But on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. The blood of Jesus Christ. Do you have faith? Is it in Jesus? The first Passover meal before the Exodus, this was a shadow of the Lord's meal the night before the cross. This meal that we who believe in Jesus Christ, we who have placed our faith, we who have pledged our loyalty in Jesus Christ, that we will celebrate today. We celebrate what he has done. And we look forward to what he will continue to do as we see him face to face. This is our hope. So fix your hope. Fix your hope on the grace that he will bring to you. The grace that is brought only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Choose To know Jesus through faith. Number one, you decide to know him. Your faith, your trust, your allegiance, your loyalty is given to him alone. And number two, you choose to abide in him. You choose to abide in him. How does one go about abiding in Jesus? What does it mean to abide in Jesus? We talk about the three critical spiritual disciplines, the means of grace. They're the first three of the five pillars that we have in Fellowship Hall, the word and prayer and holiness. Why are these the fundamental or the critical means that God gives grace to you who have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. The Word. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to renew your mind, to transform your heart. This is the means that God has chosen to use. The Spirit uses the Word in your heart to renew it, to transform it, to change it. God so loves you that He does not want to leave you where you are. He transforms us. He changes us. A second reason that the Word is so important, and it's not limited to these two, read through Psalm 119 and you see so many ways that the word is profitable and necessary and beneficial. I'm just picking two. It renews our mind. It gives us discernment to understand our heart. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of our heart. My heart 
does not always desire Christ. My heart does not always desire that which is holy. And my heart deceives me. I need the Spirit of God using the Word of God to help my heart to discern what is holy and what is unrighteous. The Word is one of the ways that we abide in Christ. Second is prayer. I'm convinced that one of the reasons that Jesus prayed as often as he did is because he was not stained with residual sin and he understood his need for his heavenly father. And he longed to spend time with him. He longed to fellowship with him. Do you long to fellowship with the father? Do you long to spend time with him? One of the aspects that convicts me when I am not praying as often as I desire to. If I can say it this way. When I look at the times that I am on my knees the most, it is in the difficult times of my life when I feel like I cannot do it on my own. There's no other way, and so I go to the Father. And when I look at the times of my life, when I am not praying as often, I'm convicted of this. Do you think that you have this, Brian? Do you think that in this time of relative peace in your life, that you're any less dependent on your Heavenly Father? And it convicts me. And it creates in me a longing to be with my Father and to fellowship with Him in prayer. The Word and prayer and holiness holiness this includes walking in righteousness and confessing when I choose unrighteousness so that 1 John 1 9 I am forgiven and cleansed these three spiritual disciplines are so essential and critical for the believer to abide in Christ that I I, I, I don't see how a person, how a believer can abide in Christ if they're not spending time with Christ. One of the things that I worry about is we talk so often about being in the Word and being in prayer and confessing sin that it becomes kind of like a chore chart. And I don't ever want it to be a chore chart. I want it to be means of grace that you desire to do because you long for Him. You want to abide in Him. You want to spend time with Him. You want to grow in your love for Him. And you know that if you don't spend time with Him, your heart can start to go on to other things. I experience this. And it scares me. And it drives me to Him. What are one of the things that we've talked about through this entire time in uh, the attributes of God? We talked about this in the fear of God when we talked about fear at the beginning of the year. Do not let, do not let your sin cause you to run from Christ. Let it cause you to run to Him. He's a wonderful Savior. He's a glorious Savior. 
Abide in Him. Run to Him. Fix your mind on Jesus Christ. He is the gospel. Fix your mind on Christ so that you be holy like He is holy. This is the second point. Know the fruit of holiness. To be holy. Your faith, your hope in Jesus is the beginning of you becoming pure, becoming holy. John in 1 John 3, 3, and everyone who has this hope fixed on Jesus purifies himself just as he is pure. Last week when we talked about holiness, it is the beauty of all God's attributes, the glory of all God's attributes and works. The basic idea of holiness is that of separation, God's perfect and unpolluted freedom, his separation from all evil. And it is only through Jesus Christ, faith in him and abiding in him, that you will be becoming holy. Verse 14, as obedient children. The NASB smooths out this phrase by translating it in this way, as obedient children. But it's different in the Greek. In the Greek, obedience is a genitive noun. It's this preposition of of. Like throne of the king. King is the genitive and it modifies throne. It explains throne, the type of throne. So in verse 14, obedient qualifies the type of children we are to be. In the Greek, it reads like this, as children of obedience. One commentator states, it does more than compliment the reader's conduct. It indicates that the call to holiness is grounded in their very nature as recipients of the new birth. We see in verse 3, we are born again. We are born with a new nature in Christ. And so as you choose, verse 14, to walk in obedience, you choose to turn from your former desires and lusts. And you choose to do this. Because this is the new creation. This is the new nature that you are. Through your new birth. This is a common Hebrewism. The child is of the same nature as his parents. This is the ruling nature, the predominant nature. Jesus used it, for example, in John 12. When you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of the light. Jesus says, believe in me so that you become like me, like my nature. Believers in Jesus abide in Jesus. They become like Jesus. Holy. It is your new nature to be holy. When you are not holy, your hope and your worship 
is not fixed on Jesus. If you are wondering what is going on when you see a pattern of unholiness in your life, it is because your eyes and your hope and your worship is not fixed on Jesus. You're hoping in something else. You're looking for something else. You're worshiping something else. And predominantly in my life, when I look at the sin in my life, my worship in those moments is Brian. Some aspect, some element, it's about me. And that is not holy. I am not holy as he is holy. I want to want to be holy as he is holy, but I am not holy as he is holy. Fix your hope, your heart, your worship completely on Jesus, the gospel. And know the fruit of holiness. And you will know the fruit of holiness. So let's talk about application. It's really not a third point. This is application. It seems pretty clear Fix your hope, your heart completely on Jesus and know the fruit of holiness in your life. It seems pretty simple. What could go wrong? How do Christians get this wrong? How do we here at Bethel get this wrong? As with many things, the reasons may be interwoven or maybe it varies by degree to some measure, but let me frame it as two ways that Christians in Bethel can get this wrong. You've got a road with two ditches on either side. These are the two ditches that we can fall into. And as I explain these ditches, I'm going to draw from Sinclair Ferguson in his book, The Whole Christ. These ditches aren't new. In early 1717, the marrow controversy started in Scotland's churches. A young man named William Craig was candidating for ordination, and during his exam, he was asked whether he affirmed or did not affirm several doctrinal statements, several creeds. One in particular he at first affirmed, but then did not affirm. Here's a summary of the present of the premise of the creed. Listen carefully. The saving grace of God in Christ is given to the elect alone. The elect are known by the forsaking of sin. Therefore, forsaking sin is a prerequisite for saving grace. The saving grace of God in Christ is given to the elect alone. The elect are known by the forsaking of sin. Therefore, forsaking of sin is a prerequisite for saving grace. I do not affirm that creed either. At the root of the issue was how the grace of God and the gospel should be preached. And this is what was happening in the 1600s and 1700s in Scotland. 
Some were worried of what we today call easy believism. A person says that they believe, they come to church, maybe they even pray, and they live however they want, or they justify not pursuing holiness because they're in the grace of God. And so what happened is people were so worried about they were seeing this in the church that they fell into the opposite ditch. The result was that the gospel was being preached in a way that implied a separation between Christ and the benefits or the fruit of the gospel. And this issue exists today. I don't think it's always deliberate. may not even be conscious. It could come from a person's background, their circumstances, their, their, their natural leaning either towards law or towards grace. It could be because of what they see within the church building. All of these things can have an influence. But here is what happens. The fruit of the gospel for salvation and sanctification, the fruit is separated from Christ, even though he himself is the gospel. The fruit of the gospel does not exist apart from Christ. Holiness does not exist apart from Christ. We only have fruit in Him. Holiness, obeying the commands of God, cannot and will not be done apart from abiding in Christ. In the New Testament... How is union with Christ described? My typical expression, it might be believer or sometimes Christian or born again, sometimes saint if I'm talking with you, sometimes disciple. The expression that's used predominantly in the New Testament, over a hundred times in Paul's 13 letters, we are in Christ. That's what's described in Christ, abiding in Jesus. That is how a follower of Christ is described. You are in Jesus. You are abiding in him. John Calvin captured this with an expression that he used to summarize the gospel. He said, the gospel is Christ clothed with his gospel. The gospel is Christ clothed with his gospel. What he's emphasizing is that salvation becomes ours only in Christ, not through Christ. Do you see that distinction? The gospel becomes yours when you are in Christ, not through Christ. Sometimes we'll use that expression Buying a fire insurance policy. I have the policy. I have coverage through the policy. I don't stay in the policy. There's a difference between being in Christ or just saying, I I need to go through Christ. I need to trust in, 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 in Him and in the gospel and then I'm okay. It's abiding in Him. Maybe this will help what I'm trying to express. Ferguson summarizes the difference in gospel emphasis in this way. I want you to hear 
what Ferguson, the way he's describing this, in, in terms of salvation and sanctification. Here's the difference in emphasis. This is what I'm trying to express. For the preacher, how can I offer these benefits? How can I offer this fruit? And for the hearer, how can I get these benefits? How can I get this fruit into my life? Now hear the difference in emphasis. For the preacher, how do I preach Christ himself? And for the hearer, how do I get into Christ? Christ is central. He's not a means to an end. I want you to get into Jesus Christ more and more. And as you do, you will grow in holiness. I want you to grow in holiness. But you will not grow apart from Christ. More than anything else, I want you to grow in Jesus Christ. And there will be all kinds of fruit that He will cause to grow in your life. More than I could ever even imagine. In ways that I can't even discern. He will grow this in you. But apart from Him, you cannot grow. You will not grow in holiness. Christ himself is the gospel. So fix your hope completely on the grace brought to you in Jesus Christ so that you will be children of obedience, so that you will be holy as he is holy. But these two ditches, bringing law into the gospel or the gospel abolishing the law, first, Bringing law into the gospel. Legalism. We earn or keep God's favor through the law. We saw this when we talked about the goodness of God and Adam and Eve in the garden. The serpent's tactic, it was to cause Eve to fixate on the one command. And then all Eve saw was a negative command. She thought of God as a negative lawgiver and judge. In her mind and in her emotions, God's law was separate from God's good character. Ferguson defines legalism as simply separating the law of God from the person of God. You see God's law, but you lose sight of God himself. Legalism begins in a person's thinking, wrongly thinking about the law. And it affects our emotions, how we feel about God, our affection for God. We can view him through a lens of negative law or a lens of distant lawgiver whose affection I must earn and maintain. When we see someone in this ditch, we may think what they lack is grace. If they just lean into grace, it will remedy their overemphasis on law. But if you're driving in one ditch, would you recommend to someone that the solution is to go and drive in the other ditch? The second ditch we can fall into, antinomianism. 
that the gospel abolishes the law. In the time of the Merrill controversy in the early 1700s, there were reasons some people leaned so far as to go into the ditch and wrongly say that forsaking sin was a prerequisite for saving grace. I'm not saying that their reasons were right, but they had reasons to lean that way. There was a concern growing in the 1600s and 1700s, and it could be summarized by a comment from a New England pastor, Thomas Shepard. He said, those who deny the use of the law to any that are in Christ become patrons of free vice under the mask of free grace. He was worried about the same thing that Paul was worried about. People who say, I'm under the blood, and so if I sin all the more, there's more grace that abounds. And Paul said, let it not be so. In the 1600s and the 1700s, the people thought, I have Christ. I don't need to continue in Christ. I can live how I live because I'm under the blood. And if I were their pastor, I'd ask them, you profess Christ. He gave his body and his blood for you. Where is your zeal for him? Where is your love for him? Why do you not desire to abide in him because of who he is and what he's done for you? But I'm not their pastor. I'm your pastor. Let us abide in Jesus as we look at who he is. And we think about and meditate about what he has done and what he continues to do for us. Sinclair Ferguson, he explains this concern of the gospel abolishing the law. He explains it this way. Clearly the concern was that any deviation from orthodoxy, any deviation would cause a domino effect. So that doctrinal and exegetical antinomianism would eventually lead to a full-fledged rejection of biblical commands altogether. And it would turn the grace of God into carnal living. That was a concern. And that continues today. It didn't stop in the 1700s. It continues today. In an article on sin in an evangelical journal last year, a well-known author said this, A command is not always a command in Scripture. He wrote, When a command stands outside our human experience and doesn't make sense to us, it's really not a command but an entreaty. How do you think this affects his view of sin? If this lies outside my experience, or it doesn't make sense to me, it's not really a command. And this temptation exists in all of us. To elevate what we are experiencing, or what we want to experience, or what makes sense to us. And we interpret scripture through the lens of our experience. Let me just give you a couple of examples. People unwilling to repent of sin 
and shifting the blame for their sin onto disorder theories. Things that are happening to them outside of their control. It's not sin. It's who they are. Now there are physical, organic maladies that happen to people's bodies. But even that does not give an excuse for sin. A professing believer that I was talking with would not come to church because he thought people were talking about him and thinking ill of him, making fun of him. He was diagnosed with agoraphobia. This is an anxiety disorder where he fears and avoids places and situations that cause him to panic and feel embarrassed. That's what he was diagnosed with. I cannot come to church. I have agoraphobia. And he said, where is grace? Brian, where is grace? Is what he said to me when I pleaded with him to repent of the sin of pride and of fear of man and assuming the worst of people. And he did. I've been told I'm too harsh when I speak of pornography as perversion. Brian, people already know that it's wrong. You are making them feel worse than they already do. It's harsh. It's not gracious to keep focusing on their sin. Because what you don't recognize, Brian, is that their brain has become disordered. It's rewired because of prolonged exposure and they cannot help it. It's harsh of you to keep focusing on the sin. It's not grace. If a person is driving in the ditch of diminishing or abolishing God's commands in the name of grace, I used to think that the fix for this focus on grace and not law was that they need to lean into law. They need to have more of an emphasis on law. But as I said, If someone's driving in one ditch, the solution is not for them to drive in another ditch. I would never suggest that. And if even if it were possible, I wouldn't say, well, keep one tire in each ditch as if that were possible. I wouldn't advise that either. Drive straight on the road. Drive straight on the road. So if separating the law from God is one ditch and no law or diminished law is the other ditch, what is the road? Listen carefully to what Sinclair Ferguson writes. The response to a person rejecting the obligation of the law is not to say you're under law, but rather to say you are despising the gospel. You are failing to understand how the grace of God and the gospel works. There is no condemnation for you under the law because of your faith union with Jesus. But that same faith union leads to the requirements of the law being fulfilled in you through the Spirit. Your real problem is not that you do not understand the law, it's that you do not understand the gospel. For Paul says that we are in law to Christ. Our relationship to the law, listen to this, our relationship to the law is not a bare, legal, cold, impersonal relationship. 
Our conformity to the law is the fruit of our marriage to the new husband that we have, Jesus Christ. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Christ died so that you can know the Father and you can know Him intimately just as the Son does. And that will not happen unless you and I are increasingly becoming holy. He died so that we can know the Father. We cannot know the Father unless we are holy. We bring glory to the Father who can have nothing to do with sin unless we are holy. We should have a great desire to walk in holiness. Knowing that we cannot do it apart from abiding in Jesus Christ. Do not separate those two. It is not an either or, it is a both and. This is the life of a believer. This is what we encourage each other in. This is what we pray for each other in. There is nothing that I want more for you than that you would desire to abide in Jesus Christ. And in doing that, he will bear fruits of holiness in your life. And it breaks my heart when I see people continuing to walk in unholiness. And not repenting. And having excuses. And blame shifting. And not receiving shepherding. And it should break your heart too. We must pray for each other. We must encourage each other. To have a zeal to abide in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have a new nature. You're children of obedience. And it's through your union with Christ. This relationship transforms you. And the fruit is your holiness. And your desiring to be holy as He is holy. So we abide. We abide in Jesus. We who are invited to come to this table. And so men, if you please come forward to prepare the elements... One of the ways...